Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the TSDCA podcast. In the coming weeks, we'll bring interviews, conversations, and explorations of the world of professional sound design. Today on the show, we have an interview with sound designer, composer, and co-secretary of the TSDCA, Jane Shaw, who, in addition to sharing her experience as a professional sound designer, will tell us a bit more about the TSDCA. We hope you enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. My name is Jane Shaw, and I'm a sound designer composer living in Brooklyn. I remember the moment that I found out that the Tony had been taken away from sound. And, you know, it was not taken away from me personally. I'd never been nominated. I had no hope of getting one in the future. I was doing a show at a theater that was on the third floor of a building, and the ceiling height was like 14 feet. And I was standing next to the copier that was in a room just outside of where the audience was. You know, very small theater. And I read the information, I assume, on my phone. And I really felt like someone had gut-punched me. And I looked up, and there was nobody in that theater that I really felt I could then talk to about it. I didn't have a community that I could go speak to. And I think that's how many people felt. And after that happened, there was a group of 14 designers that came together. They ranged in age, they ranged in gender, they ranged in state of their career and what state they worked in. And we talked about what to do about that particular thing. But very soon, we just started to talk about the joy of that moment of the 14 of us talking. That moment where we all were in the same room, we had the same vocabulary, we had the same interests. We're all very different people, and we designed very different shows. But we had some similar goals. And there was a lovely community just in that moment, even though we were, you know, angry or upset about something, we realized that community was really important. And we thought it would be important for the rest of the sound design community to also have. So very shortly thereafter, we started to talk about what would happen if we created some kind of association together. We certainly knew that there were, you know, many people that would be interested in this. So we started to have town halls across the country, Chicago, Pittsburgh, New York, and LA all had town halls talking about what would be important, and then we opened up for membership. So TSCCA, Theatrical Sound Designers and Composers Association, is now five years old, officially, which is very exciting, and has four basic tenets, and that is community, advocacy, education, and outreach. Across the five years that we've been working together, we've made strides in each of those areas. I think for me, the thing I'm most proud of is the community that we've established with sound designers and composers from across the country. So now, you know, on a regular phone call, I was just on a on a Zoom meeting, you know, other members of the conversation were calling in from California, from just down the block in Brooklyn, from Long Island City, from the middle of the country, from Minneapolis. And this has become common that we're sharing our concerns and challenges, and we've become friends. And often, we work alone. Many of our shows, there's only one sound designer involved. They're not a team. So this has become a community for, I think, many folks across the country, which I'm very proud of. But it's also important, the advocacy we do, that ranges from diversifying our industry to advocating for wireless frequencies. Topics change over time, but it's been great to work with my fellow sound designers on these things that we all think are important. So my role is I'm one of the co-secretaries 
And I'm also a co-editor on the newsletter. So I've been on the executive board since the founding of the association. And through the newsletter, I feel like we've been able to communicate to people who, you know, don't like Facebook, aren't comfortable on Slack, but still want to be aware of the things that are happening. As co-secretary, I also run the inbox or try to, <laughs> which is if you have concerns at all about TSDCA, please do email us at info at and we will get back to you as soon as we can. One of the things that I've become more and more aware of that theater does is simply just try to reflect how we live as humans. I have a director that I really love working with who always, you know, if we get stuck, he says, what do the humans do? And similarly, I've found this challenge with TSDCA that part of what we've spent a lot of time thinking about is how can we work together towards a similar goal? So organizing committees and figuring out how to develop language about how composers work with teams or how you should best talk to a shop or what are the important things that everyone needs in a contract. There's no one way to do this and figuring out how to communicate better has been one of the challenges, but also one of the real benefits of being a member of TSDCA because those skills in interpersonal communication apply to all of my life, you know, apply to my family as much as they apply to a show that I work on. So that's something we're constantly revising and I hope bettering the way that TSCCA members work together. So in line with that, some of the committees that I'm involved with are membership and the EDI committee, equity, diversity, and inclusion. And as part of the EDI committee, one of the subgroups is the Pat McKay Diversity and Design Fellowship. There is a group of judges that receive applications through LDI and with the help of USITT, award those fellowships every year to college students who are pursuing design degrees. I'm really excited about what's happened since March 13th or whenever you want to draw the line in the sand as to when theaters all sort of froze mid-step or mid-stride. We started by doing weekly hangouts, both one for early career and one for all members, just to provide a moment where we could all come together and hang out. This is a really difficult time where I think everybody's feeling a little bit suspended, not knowing where to go or what to do. Some people have employment in online stuff, but a lot of people don't. And so we wanted to just provide some kind of community and moment we could all come together and talk. And then I have to say the community really stepped up. The amount of educational offerings has been fantastic. I personally took Andrew Keister's Pro Tools class, which I very much enjoyed. Michael Roth's Music Theory, and now sort of following that, the salons that he's leading have been incredibly important. I think his idea about just we need to keep composing, we need to keep creating. And the silver lining is, now that it's not show specific, what do you sound like? What music do you make for yourself that's not show related? And that's been really really great. And he's brought a lot of unusual people to those meetings that would not be possible if life was progressing as it was before, because they'd be busy. The annual meeting, I thought was a real triumph. It was a lot. There were a lot of things that happened. But in that vein, having Karen Ford come and speak to us, you know, a leading Broadway A1 for decades was very exciting. And to have the designers that she worked with, Scott Lehrer and John Weston, show up and then have Abe Jacob also there, I mean, that was very exciting. And may not have been possible in what we're terming the before time. 
we also wanted to continue the idea of what Michael Roth was doing in terms of just keeping people's creative juices flowing. Many members had voiced ideas about how to do that. Bart Fassbender and Ken Goodwin had some ideas. And so we created a group that just looked at that. Like if we did a creative prompt throughout the annual meeting, we could both get members to explore their creativity, but also create some community and have people meet and work in different kinds of situations together. There have been some really great educational opportunities, and we are videoing them all, and they are up on the website. Some of them are available to members only, but a great number, a growing number, are available to the public as well. You know, those educational opportunities, I mean, we've done a ton online since March of 2020, but there was also a lot of those kinds of activities before. We did a gathering that went to the encounter and then spoke to Gareth and his mixers afterwards. And there was a gathering at Rose Tattoo. There have been in-person things, you know, before we did all these online classes. When everything started to go south, shall we say, when we realized things were going to freeze, I was just finishing up doing a short semester at Dartmouth with some sound design students. And they found out that they weren't going to be coming back for the next semester, actually during our final exam. And watching those six folks deal with that moment, I feel like they were very strong in an unusual situation, but they were also thrown and they were definitely upset. I know I wasn't the only person who watched students go through that in that moment. And as a result, Amy Altadonna, Matt Tibbs, and I formed through TSDCA, the Student Sound Designer Facebook Connection Group, that it is publicly available. Anybody can join as long as you answer a few questions. We did 11 weeks of live events where various members of the industry came and spoke to the students and took questions via Facebook Live. It was a good service, and it was interesting to sort of meet and see all the students from across the country who joined those conversations. There are four levels of membership for TSDCA. There's a professional level of membership, which is $100 a year, and the minimum requirements when you apply are three years of three professional productions a year. There is also a place on the application for references. And that is the bulk of the association. But we have a growing affiliated and early career membership group. The next two levels, they're both $50 a year, are affiliated and early career. And affiliated is your mixers and your engineers and your production audio folks and your piano tuners and your musicians and your production managers, should they wish to join. But it's all the people that work with us to make our designs a reality. Early career is for people that have just come out of college. It's a little bit cheaper than being a professional member, and it also lets us target a group that may want or need some mentorship opportunities. Then the last level of membership is supporting. And supporting, you don't have to submit any information. And this is where we send students. And as I always say, this is where I send my parents. So people that are supporters want to support various activities in terms of community education, outreach, and advocacy, but are not sound designers, professional sound designers, or out in the professional world yet. There are various ways that corporations can support us. Corporate membership is $1,000 a year. We've had EDI trainings. For example, DNB specifically supported our EDI training with Equity Quotient back in February of 2020. DNB and Meyer have both supported annual meeting ventures in the past. So has Sure. Electrosonics supported the food at several annual meetings. So sometimes it's a specific donation, but sometimes it's an actual corporate membership. 
There's also been a couple of instances of corporations sponsoring prizes. So when we first opened up, there was a series of prizes that people were eligible for, and then there was a big drawing. So there's a list of those sponsors on our site. And even in this recent annual meeting, the Krotos company ran a little contest and had a couple of winners that won some of their products. And that's been fun for members to participate in. So let's talk a little bit about you. Jane, what was your path to becoming a sound designer? I grew up in Lawrence, Kansas, which is the home of the Jayhawks. My viola teacher, Michael Kimber, was an early, early member of the Cronus Quartet. There's a lot of really great music that goes through that town. Great town to grow up in. I think my first moment of being aware of sound design, I think it was in first grade, and the teacher asked us to do a book report on tape. And so, you know, I had a cassette recorder. I'm not sure I remember the book, but it was a go-back-in-time story where you had a girl from this time period and a girl from the Roman time period, and she goes back. And so I was delivering my book report into the cassette recorder sitting at this table. And as I said, I was probably like six or seven. And I had sort of talked to my parents about what I was doing with this book report, and there might be some kind of musical interlude although I didn't know what was happening. As I was giving the book report and I was describing, I think it's like Pompeii or something, and that volcanoes erupting and then people are running, et cetera, et cetera. Suddenly I hear my father doing these like offstage yells in the background. And I had this moment of like, my father has lost his mind. And then I suddenly realized he's being the, you know, the scared uh, townspeople running away from the lava and is like running around our house like a madman. He was sound designing my book report. And maybe we talked about it, but I don't think I'd understood it until he started to do it. So I think that was my first encounter of sound design. He was also the thunder sheet in a local production of magic flute, which I remember being very excited about. There were two things that led to me wholeheartedly diving into music and sound being the world that I love. One is playing in an orchestra. For me, personally, playing the viola meant something. It's harmony. It supports other voices. When you're playing it, you're sitting in the middle of the orchestra. You hear the different sections in a different way than, say, violins or cellos sitting on the outside. I loved that. I loved being in the middle of something. I was part of Kansas City Youth Symphony. That was a great orchestra to be a part of. And we had this kind of tricky conductor. It was during Desert Storm. And they had us rehearse in a military facility because we were a pretty large orchestra. But we didn't belong to any school. There were musicians gathered from all the high schools across Kansas City and Lawrence and Topeka and stuff like that. So we were from all over. They found us this place to rehearse in a military bunker. And at one point, we were playing the Benjamin Britten Simple Symphony, and it really was going quite well. And suddenly I saw the parents that were like on the outside of the group. Some military people had come up to them, and now the parents were like really trying to get the attention of the conductor. And he wouldn't let us stop. He made us finish that piece. And as the tension from the parents kept rising, the intensity with which we paid attention to the music and to what our conductor was doing intensified. And it really was a beautiful performance of the Simple Symphony. And then we were told to exit the building because there'd been a bomb threat called in. And I just remember him being like, that was worth it, <laughs> you know, that losing, you know, I don't know, 50 high schoolers to a potential balance threat, you know, that getting that performance of the Simple Symphony was worth that sacrifice. 
And that actually really resonated with me. And I obviously I remember it. So being part of an orchestra really, really made a difference. I had various teachers, Lenita Harris, who taught me for years, and also Michael Kimber. And then the second thing that happened was when I was in undergrad, David Gordon came in and they did a piece called Schlemiel the First, which was klezmer music. And I had never heard klezmer music. As someone from the Midwest, I mean, now maybe you are exposed to it. But at that point, I had never heard that. These were instruments I thought I knew, those horn instruments, the wind instruments, playing in this totally different way. And the piece was fantastic. And that's the second big moment that I think just made me want to live in this world. So did you initially attend College for Sound, or was that a later discovery? So I went to undergrad in biochemistry. I went to Harvard, which doesn't have a theater program, or didn't, excuse me, now they have changed. But at that time, they didn't have a theater program. So after freshman year, uh, I needed a place to stay. I was kind of a little homeless there for a couple of weeks while my summer housing opened up. I was going to work in a lab at the med school. And someone I knew from a church group said, oh, you can sleep on my floor, but you have to press go on the cassette deck for this senior show I'm the producer of. So it was four voiceover cues for the very Brady show. And that was my first experience in the world of sound. And because there was no sort of organized department, the fact that I now knew how to turn on the sound system and press go on the cassette deck meant that I was in high demand for the rest of that summer theater season. So I ended up running sound for that whole summer, mostly off a cassette deck. In one memorable case, a very complicated sound design that was all on one cassette where you queued up based on the numbers on the cassette. Because I don't think I had headphones. Like, I think you just did it you know, by the counter. I'm sure you can imagine how successful that was night to night, but I was enjoying being the front of house sound person, as it were, with the cassette deck. After that first summer of doing the thing where the guy handed me one cassette with all the cues, I realized that was insane. So I would buy a ton of cassettes and then I would put one cue per cassette. And sometimes act one would be on the front and act two would be on the back if I had time to rewind. And then you would open up the cassette cover and make it be a little stand And I would set it up on this big, huge table and, you know, they'd all be labeled. So then the operator would cue them up in the pre-show and then drop them in, you know, one per cue. And I was definitely doing that in the summer of 95. And then I was asked to design some Americans abroad. And suddenly I needed to actually sort of figure out some cues. So I went to the sound designer at American Repertory Theater, which at that point was Chris Walker. And I said, I have this scene. I need cars on a highway, and I need rain. And he explained to me that there were two channels on a cassette, so I could put cars on the left side and rain on the right side, and then I could balance them in the theater, which blew my little head. That was my first cue, creating 60 minutes of cars on the left channel and rain on the right channel. So I spent the remaining part of college, three years doing sound designs. I had a great time, worked with some really fun people, including sound designing Merlin for Scott Schwartz, Stephen Schwartz's son, who was in my class, which has many good stories attached to it. I do also remember that summer of 95 with a director that I still work with and love deeply, Jose Zayas, doing my first music in the full system and then goes into the radio you know, like some kind of pull of image. And that was very exciting. And somehow I did it on a cassette. I'd really exploited the left-right 
on a cassette by the time I left Harvard undergrad. (laughs) Senior year, I've kept up. I'm staying in biochemistry. I'm still working in a lab. And Chris asked me what I thought I was going to do after college. The thing is, is that Chris also handled the pyro for American Repertory Theater. And I'd never met another sound designer, so I thought all sound designers did pyro. So when he said, what do you want to do with your life? I was like, well, this sound design, I really love it. I mean, I enjoy my time in the lab, and I think it's important, but I really love working in theater. And sound design is the thing that I've been doing, so I would love to continue. And I see how it relates to my playing viola and piano, but not being a star or like a performer. And it also relates to my scientific part of my brain. You know, it activates those synapses. This sounds great, except that I don't want to do the pyro. I'm never going to blow things up. And so he let me know that actually, no, sound designers don't do pyro usually. And that not only that, there were grad programs. All of this was news to me. I had no idea. So then he said, well, I've heard Yale has a program, so you should apply. So I applied and I went and interviewed with David Budrys and I was just amazed. I thought he was amazing. I loved hearing him talk. I thought the school was great. So I applied and was accepted, which was great. And so I went straight, which I don't actually recommend for anyone. I'm not sure if I could have survived in New York if I'd gone straight to New York and not gone to grad school. I had no skills, to be honest. I would not have stayed in sound, I don't think. So I did go straight to grad school, but I do suggest that people take a year or more off to experience the industry, travel the world, see if that's what they want to do. But I went straight and I worked in the cabaret a lot. I learned a lot about the other design disciplines. And then I got to New York. So tell me about your early days in the city. I spent a couple years out of college. I worked at NYU, which is great entry to the city because I had a place to go, had an office. I was sort of routinely doing basic sound things, you know, in terms of hooking up systems. And that actually just reinforced some of what I'd learned in grad school, which was really good for me because I didn't really have that much experience. And worked at Jacob's Pillow Dance Festival, which was really great. I worked at Jacob's Pillow for five years, first as the sound supervisor, and then I was a production manager for four years. And the Merce Cunningham Company came several times. And I still remember the first time they came, someone had said to me, the music is very strange. So I was a little prepared, I guess. And I remember walking around the theater from the outside. I think that must have been a year that I was a production manager in the other space because I was not there when they set up. So I just heard the sound check from outside the theater. And I mean, it was the strangest, loudest, craziest sound check you've ever heard. And I kept walking around the outside of the theater. You know, I was definitely like as a classically trained viola player, I was like, well, my goodness, this is not appropriate. But I also was very intrigued and I kept walking around the outside of the theater. So that was my first experience of them. I had friends who were both the production manager of the company, who I later married, and then also the lighting director was a close friend of mine from grad school. So it was Jacob's Pillow that led me to the Cunningham troupe, but it was also through Who You Know, which is so much of what we do, is our careers develop through those personal connections. I wasn't there that long. I think I was there maybe a year and a half. One of the stressful points for me anyway was that it was standard at that point that the mixed position was in the pit, which is, of course, not where you can hear the sound. So... I had many fraught conversations with the music director at that point, Takahisa Kusugi, about how was I supposed to mix this show that I could not actually hear because I was in the orchestra pit. 
And there was a lot of like heaving myself over the back of the orchestra pit to try and go into these venues to hear the musicians sound checking. So I kind of knew what was happening in the actual live show. So there were definitely some things about it that I found awkward and I felt like I couldn't support in the way that I wanted to. However, looking back on it, I learned so much in that short period of time. They've been traveling with surround sound since the 1950s. The idea of activating different parts of your space is just routine for that company. And there's sort of an exploration of a space with sound that I hope has stuck with me and affects my work today. And they democratize the positions. So rear right balcony is just as important as main left. That is not the way that we typically design our musical and play sound systems. Say you have an event, capital E, this would be a Merce Cunningham event, where you have musicians coming in, oftentimes they will split up which speaker clusters they use. The whole idea of main left and right is way out the window. It's not even part of their vocabulary. And that was incredibly freeing. What you just made me think of was a piece that you either did, if I hope I get the numbers right, it's a cage piece, you either did with a solo cello or with a solo cello and 104 instruments. And part of the 104 instruments is an extraordinary percussion section. And so my first ever show with the Merce Cunningham Company, we were at La Fenice. Actually, La Fenice had burned down. So we were really on another island in a very, very fancy tent. But they pulled out old percussion instruments. I mean, old wind machines, you know, all that in terms of sound designer land, those kind of textures you'd never hear again, you know, it was just crazy. And they took up like so much space, but it was an amazing performance. The other thing that I loved and that I really feel has helped me in some situations is that I love collaboration. I love working in rehearsal. I love talking about the show. They don't do that. So what Morse Cunningham would say to a visual designer and a composer would be, the name of the piece is Winter Branch. We're going to premiere it on this date. It's going to be in this theater. I'll see you there. So there's not even a dress rehearsal with that music. Now, depending on the decor, they may see that. We definitely did a piece that had some moving elements when I was with the company, and they did sort of work that into the choreography. But that idea that you come with your best game, you know, the bar is high and you show up higher. That idea, I think, is really great. Merce was a true visionary, and I feel very, very lucky to have been around him. You know, I've heard other designers say that they won't put in a surround system unless the piece really needs it, which I totally get. And I do think that that, you know, especially with budgets and time and labor, etc. But I'm just so excited by activating different parts of the audience's room. I'm always interested in those locations. And also locations where you put something that's not ideal. What does it sound like if I put something way up in the back of the balcony or on a catwalk over the space or something like that? What are all the possibilities? Because as sound designers, we have the option of the house, of the theater. You know, that space which sometimes scenic designers, sometimes lighting designers activate, but not always, but we always activate it. We may just be activating it from the front, but we could also be activating it from all around. And, you know, I find that exciting. Now, of course, you're looking at what's appropriate for a play. When everything shut down in March, I was doing a play. I was going to use surround, but I'm not sure that there was going to be like a lot of musical activation of that surround. I think it was going to be mostly ambient. Every piece is different, of course, but that early idea of 
sound from all around and really exploring the space that you were in, I think has deeply affected me. So let's jump back to your early days in the city. You moved here and started working for NYU. I had the lovely title of Director of Lighting and Sound at NYU. And I was lucky in my location. I was on the third floor of 721 Broadway, and the department was lovely. Kitty Leach, dearly departed Kitty Leach, was the costume shop coordinator. Chris Janik ran the department. Late Mitchell ran the shop. Those were sort of the people that I sort of hung out with and introduced me to the city in a way. The office that they gave me was on the Experimental Theater Wing, and next door was the secretary to that department. And Annie B. Parson, who leads Big Dance Theater, was a teacher in that department and had gone to her and said, I need a sound designer for a show I'm doing. I don't know anybody. Do you have any ideas? And Nance said, well, you know, there's this new person next door. Why don't you see if she's free? So my first job was for Annie B., part of Big Dance Theater for a show called Girl Gone. And it was down at the Flea in their previous location. But when their previous location opened, I think we were the first show that opened that theater. And my choice was $100 or a monthly Metro card. And I chose the $100. (laughs) No, it was not an outlier, is my memory. It was the most insulting, just because of the whole monthly Metro card thing. But in terms of the amount of the fee, that was not an outlier. I definitely did shows for a couple hundred dollars here and there. But when I first was in the city... I had other employment. I was working at NYU for a couple years, and after that, I worked for the Merce Cunningham Company. So for those three and a half, four years, there was buffer. So I could accept, you know what I mean? Like financially, I could make it work. After that is when it gets more tricky. And because then I toured the shows with Big Dance Theater, then I would get a weekly as a touring person. I was able to support myself a bit more. But I do remember sort of after I had left those steady jobs and then people weren't paying me to be in rehearsal and then suddenly having this moment of like, I can't do this. This is impossible. How do people do this? Then for a while, especially with the dance companies, I'd set it up that I would work in rehearsal. I would do sound in rehearsal with them. So it was not like I was sitting there just taking notes. I would be developing the sound score and playing it there in the rehearsal room, but that they would pay me a weekly for doing that so that I could support myself rather than a single fee. But all that work is happening before I join the union. Always, I have seen teams for the other design disciplines. I was never aware of a lighting designer not having a master electrician, for example. I think there was a slow switch from some of those spaces having equipment in places and then it was never going to move. So they were like, why do you need somebody? There's fun getting down and dirty and climbing the ladder. But we also have to be safe and we also want to be efficient with our time and we want to be supported and we want to spend the time working on the actual content, not on hanging the speaker. But I feel like that has slowly changed over time. But I do think that it's changed quite quickly. And again, this is like a generational issue, is that if someone comes in that's only done off-Broadway work for the last couple of years, they assume a level of production and preparedness that their designer may have no idea is what is expected. Because it wasn't like that five years ago. I'm super glad it's like that now, but it's a bit of a learning curve sometimes. And so the way I started was I would just try and get them to hire somebody for a day, say like eight hours with another person to load in a sound system. That was the beginning. So they would only be there for that day and we would make sure it worked at the end. But anything that happened between then and, you know, 
the future was up to me and the op to handle. And hopefully there was an op. I still do shows where there's not a specific sound op, that there's one person running both. You know, we were just having another TSDCA phone call that I was on earlier today, and we were talking about how important it is to share what people are getting paid. And I really do think that's important. And I'm getting better about sharing and being clear about what I was paid or not paid for something. But I believe the way I was brought up was that you did not talk about money. So I would not have brought it up. You know, I think every so often people threw out, oh, it's a favored nations contract. And I was, you know, kind of like, oh, sounds good. But I didn't know about them. Then I made a rule that I wouldn't work for under $500. And I remember saying no to some people and them getting very angry at me. (laughs) And then the next rule was I wasn't going to do it for less than $1,000. But in terms of designing a show, designing a typical three-week rehearsal process, tech preview show, I started to sort of raise my bar about what I would and wouldn't accept. TCG used to run these fellowships. And I got one of those fellowships, which was a very nice financial support for two years. That's how I met Mark Bennett, watching him tech host of Utopia at Lincoln Center. And also during that time, I joined the union. And then shortly, I think thereafter, got an agent. Then I started to kind of be aware of what other people were making or what was considered a minimum or what was acceptable. I mean, I really had no one to talk to. And so that moment of then TSDCA, that group starting to talk. I don't think I'm alone in that. It's not minor to create a community that can share this kind of information, be it pay or how you make it work or how you balance the rest of your life with these crazy hours. You know, all that kind of stuff is super important. Then I think you have generational conflict when it starts happening because, you know, the slightly older people are like, why are these slightly younger people obsessed with money? Well, they're not obsessed with money. They just want to get paid for what they're doing. But if you've had decades of people not talking about money, that can be jarring. So it is good that we're being more transparent with each other about what people are getting. Some of this may have been my own ignorance when I got to the city, but I definitely feel that there are more people coming in and knowing they're going to be assistants and associates and wanting that experience. I left grad school, somehow I'd gotten a message from someone. I mean, I don't think anybody really told me, you know, I don't think it came from the teachers necessarily, but I'd gotten the message that you did not want to assist or be an associate, that then you might get stuck in that role. And that's just so wrong. It's how people learn. It's how people forge connections. It's how they get into rooms that they would not get into otherwise. And they can watch those rooms create work and they can listen to directors with, you know, sound designers that have more experience with them. They can be introduced to gear. They can work with stage managers. I mean, all of this is so good. And I think now that's just everybody sort of accepts that path and embraces it. When I got to the city, I did not want to work on sound crews. I wanted to work on lighting crews. I just felt it was easier to be neck down on a lighting crew. On a sound crew, I'd be like, why are you doing it that way? You know, (laughs) I've never seen this cable before, whatever it was. But I think people working in shops or people working on builds... I was not aware of that happening. But again, my like circle of people I knew was kind of non-existent. I remember doing shows where I had to really argue to have somebody other than me hang the speakers. The idea that you were the one and only was completely accepted downtown. I definitely think that's changed, which I think is amazing and great. But I also think sort of mimicking our country, like bigger problems... I think the smaller group of really successful designers is designing more and more and they're sort of making more and more money and the others are falling further behind. 
I don't see the middle filling in. But it is a bigger community, which I think is good. Although we are certainly not as diverse as we should be, and we certainly don't reflect the art that we worked on in terms of how diverse our teams are or the design crews are, it is swinging to be better, which is heartening. I know it's slow. I know it's frustrating for people. But I do feel like there are more voices being heard slowly but surely, which is great. Can you talk about your experience as part of the team that negotiated the USA 829 off-Broadway contract? I was on the negotiating team, but I was not part of that initial group. I just don't want to take anything away from that initial group. Uh, Daniele Worley and Clint Ramos and some of the other folks that were involved right at the very beginning and really convinced the union that this could happen. I mean, it was really their strength and their commitment and their willingness to withdraw themselves from a show and make a big stand that actually moved that thing forward. I did serve on the committee that was part of that negotiation, though. As production values had gone up, you know, it was easier to have more complicated shows. You know, as sound designers, there were more tools that we could easily have in our toolbox. Editing a cue did not mean you went back to the studio at night and did some kind of reel-to-reel splicing that took hours. You know, it could happen immediately. It could happen there, which is really super great for us as sound designers and also for the show. Things like pre-show announcements. It used to be pre-show announcement. If you want an announcement, you're going to book a studio. You're going to get your talent. You're going to go there and record. Now we all have handheld recorders. We take somebody into a closet and we make it happen. One could say more efficient, but that moved the cost of production onto the individual designer. Now we're all using our computers, using our handheld device, but we actually never were compensated for that change. Also, the incredible growth of the preview process, getting longer and longer with no understanding of how that might affect our time as designers. We needed some kind of structure with which to understand what was going to be expected, how long it was going to be, and if we were going to be compensated for that time in the theater. And definitely, obviously, fee structure, it felt like the same job was getting wildly different fees at various theaters. And I think then each department had their specific issues. You know, I definitely, as part of that committee, heard a lot about some of the costume designer issues, which were really serious. I mean, how much they were expected to pay for, not just the costumes, but the options for the costumes. People were not handing over theater credit cards to do all that. They were sort of expecting the costume designer to front all that money. They weren't providing space for the costume designer to do fittings. There were overarching issues about general fee structure and time in previews, but there were also specific issues in each department that wanted to be addressed. So I thought it was a really good thing to have something, at least with that set of theaters, it's not all theaters in New York by any stretch of the imagination, but with that group of theaters, you have a structure, and then you can also take that contract even to a theater that's outside of that group and say, this is how we think work should be done. This is, you know, the number of previews, and after that you pay me, or this is my daily rate. So I think it was a really valuable thing that happened. The big thing that they just would not continue the conversation if we included assistants and associates in the negotiations. So they were going to leave the table if that was even mentioned. So that was, I think, the hardest thing for many of us because obviously we are all part of the same community. So we knew that there would be people that were hurt and angry about that and not supported. But we felt that it would be better to have that initial contract, even if assistants and associates were not addressed, rather than just have no contract at all. So I think... In terms of moving forward, I'm sure the other side of the table still doesn't want to talk about assistants and associates, but that is obviously one thing that the designers are still aware of. And I just think 
COVID and how we negotiate it is going to be huge going forward. Who's responsible? What happens when things happen? Do we all sign some kind of paper that says this theater, we're all going to be masked everywhere? You know, all those kinds of things are going to be big in this next series of negotiations, I would assume. What's a piece of advice that you would give to someone starting out in the industry? You want to get in as many rooms as possible. And those rooms range from the dance rehearsal room, so you understand how that dance piece came together, to the tech at Lincoln Center, so you can see how the designer gets out of an awkward moment, to the industrial show where they've got the newest and brightest microphones available to use. So how can you get in all those different rooms and not limit any of your options? I think the sound community were a odd group, but we're fun. And I think we like to talk about what we do. We love what we do. So go out there and get in all those rooms and learn everything you can from how to program a Digico to what's the best way to orchestrate for a harp. All of this can make you a better sound designer and also make you hone in on what you love doing. When you start out, if you don't know all those possibilities, you may not know what you're really going to excel at and what you're going to really love doing. So get in as many different rooms as possible and listen when you're there. I feel very lucky that I worked with Takisa Kasugi with Merce and the various musicians that came through that pit. I feel really lucky to have been a fly on the wall during the Coast of Utopia with Mark Bennett and seeing how he worked and the language that he used and the team that he'd assembled. There are a couple of people that pushed me into rooms. Tyler Michelow pushed me to apply for that TCG fellowship, which was so helpful. Tyler Michelow is a award-winning lighting designer. Scott Lehrer pushed me into a collaboration with Theater for a New Audience, where I've done many shows, and that's been a really important building block for me. Most recently with them, I worked with a band. That was an amazing room to be in. So I feel like I've been in a lot of amazing rooms, including rooms with TSCCA members at various annual meetings. But I do think that there are some rooms that I haven't been allowed in. You know, specifically, I'm thinking about the Broadway theaters and other theaters in New York where it feels like the door is closed for whatever reason. I feel like there are regional doors that are easier. People feel more open. They work with you. They support you. I'm thinking about the Old Globe and Cleveland Playhouse, Cincinnati Playhouse, Aslo Rep down in Florida, where they support you and bring you back. And there are definitely rooms in New York that I do feel are closed to me. Unfortunately, because I didn't choose that route early of being assistant and associate, I didn't get in that room through that. It's not like I turned down jobs, but I certainly did not go after them. What are some of your favorite tools that you get to use in creating your work? So I work in Ableton and completely differently than you work in Ableton. That was what was so great about that class you guys ran was like, I've been working in Ableton for a decade, I guess. I don't know, but a while, a long time. And I do not work like any of the three of you guys, you and Jess and Misha. So that was great to see that class that you ran and see people using it in such a different way. You know, when I first met Pro Tools, it only rendered in real time, which I was like, I do not have time for that. So that was one reason that I switched over to Ableton. Of course, that's not the case with Pro Tools anymore. And it was really great to take the Keister class and learn a different affection for Pro Tools, I will say. I love my handheld Zoom. I like the idea that I can just pull out and record something. I think that's super great. Oh my gosh, the idea that you can have remotes for these digital boards, just that idea that I can walk around the room and listen from a different place and change the programming and not interfere with the op is amazing. And that's true with many boards. So it's not really just a comment about one of them, but the power of that is so great. That's so amazing. 
What are you listening to? What am I listening to? Well, you know what? I am taking a music for film class online right now. My next project is the you score the trailer for Troy. So I'm listening to some big drums right now. <laughs> That's due on Sunday. The other thing that I've been doing during the quarantine that really has been so great is picking up piano lessons again. And it's online and I had no hope for it. I was like, well, it'll get me to practice, but how could this possibly work? Well, it totally works. I'm working through these Prokofiev vision fugitives, but then we just started on some Schumann scenes for children. And I'm also working through some box stuff, sort of as an alternate for stuff with pedal. And that's been so great to work on those. So I've been listening to that a lot, but it's because I've been playing it, which has been fun. I do a lot of listening for work and listening for pleasure. When I'm in the city, I try to go to the dress rehearsals for the Philharmonic. That's one thing I've really enjoyed doing. And I love going to opera because when I'm at an opera, I'm listening for pleasure. There's nothing in that opera that is going to distract me <laughs> with thinking that I could do something as a sound designer. You know what I mean? I'm just enjoying it. You know, I'm always trying to make myself go to more shows that I'm not working at. I love going to the jazz standard and listening to the big band stuff. I love that. I think it's a great night out. But also going to listen to big musicals on Broadway, which is not really my world. You know, I'm more of a composer for straight theater. But it is a problem. I do think it's a challenge because we spend so much time listening for work. It's a good question that we keep having to ask ourselves about what we listen to for pleasure. This has been great. Jane, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Hope you got some good stuff and you can cut out the other stuff. <laughs> This podcast is a production of the TSDCA. This episode was produced, edited, mixed, and scored by me, Josh Samuels, with additional support from Brad Barrage, Eric Glauber, Kyle Jensen, Brandon Reed, and Stephanie Sr. Additional equipment was provided by Shore. If you like what you heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're interested in finding out more about the TSDCA, our home on the web is tsdca.org.